Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Brokenness to Faith podcast. My name is Noah, and I will be your host for today. Um, so for today's episode and next week's episode, me and Mark are going to be doing individual episodes. Uh, he had an idea for an episode that he wanted to do, and so whenever one of us has an idea that we want to do on our own, the other one will do an episode on their own as well, just to uh, even it out. So... Real quick, some points of business before I get into the uh, the meat and potatoes for today. Uh, first and foremost, if you're listening to this the day or the week of upload, then you'll notice that this came out on a Monday, not Saturday as it normally does. And I apologize for that. We had some mix-ups and some issues behind the scenes that unfortunately caused the episode to be pushed back a few days. Um, so again, apologize for that. Things are a little hectic because of all of the... Um, the way things are going right now and whatnot, it's hard to keep track of things and get stuff done. Um, as of right now, though, in case you don't know this, you're not aware, for the foreseeable future, at least for the rest of April, maybe even into May, we will be doing one episode every single week. We're going to try to fulfill that commitment because we understand that a lot of people are at home and they have a lot more time on their hands. And so we want to try to provide more content you guys to listen and enjoy and you know help fill some of that time if we can so we're going to try to maintain once a week uh depending on how things go uh we might have to do more of these solo episodes if we can't meet together anymore or uh what goes on with that so it's a very fluid situation and things could change by next week so bear with us as things happen if we make mistakes if episodes are out late. I know some of the previous episodes we had some uh, audio issues. Um, you know, me and Mark, we're not perfect. We're human beings, and we're trying to figure this all out as much as you guys are at home with your situation. So, regardless, though, we appreciate the support. We appreciate everybody who does listen and tune in, and it's a blessing to us, and I know it's a blessing for everybody else. So, we appreciate it. And, um, anyways, enough of that. Moving to the second point of business. Um, if you would like to contact us, you can email us at brokennesstofaith at gmail.com. Um, if you have an Instagram, you can send us a message at uh, brokenness underscore two underscore faith. Um, obviously, since we're doing this every single week, me and Marky are in need of some ideas. If you have any, we would love to answer a question you have on one of our episodes or maybe do a whole episode over a topic that you have. And so I encourage you to send those ideas in, and there's a good chance that we will do that idea. Um, also, if you have just in general any other questions about the podcast or about me and Mark, questions about what we do, or if you have any other comments or concerns or complaints, please feel free to email us. We would love to hear those complaints or those comments, whatever you might have, and it would be a huge help for us just in general to hear that. And another thing, too, that I don't think me and Marky have ever mentioned on this podcast before, but if you do give us a suggestion or ask us a question to answer on the podcast, I want to emphasize, just in case this applies to you, that you will be kept anonymous. Um, we have no intentions of saying who gave us the idea or gave us that question. Um, so if you want to ask us, how do I tell my pastor that I don't like his sermons, that's perfectly okay because we won't say who asked that question. So you can ask us that question knowing that it's not going to get tied back to you. 
um, or whatever else it might be. So I just wanted to say that and, and clarify that because I don't think we've ever said that before. You will remain anonymous if you have any ideas or suggestions or questions, um, just so that kind of gives you a little bit more liberty and freedom to ask your question without fear of the, you know, it coming back around to you. Um, so anyways, enough of that. Let's get into the the, the subject of the podcast today. Um, if you've read the title, you already are aware of what it is. Uh, today I want to talk about evidence and proof of the divine authority of Scripture, if you will. And it's something a little different, um, something off the norm of what we've been talking about. And real, uh, before I get into it, I want to say that this is one of my all-time favorite things to talk about, is proof of the the authority of Scripture or proof of biblical stories, um, whatever category you want to put that in. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. I love bringing up evidence of the Bible. I love defending the Bible. I love looking at the evidence because, you know, our faith is on one hand our own experiences, right? Part of the reason you're a Christian is because of what you have experienced and what you have, you know, your one-on-ones with God in your own personal life. But part of the reason we're Christians, I believe, is and should be the evidence, the fact that the Bible is the Word of God. You know, that should be one of the the pillars of our faith is the fact that it is true, right? <laughs> that there's evidence and that, you know, what the Bible says happened did happen. You know, that the Red Sea really was parted, that, you know, uh, Jesus really did live and walk the earth and do the miracles, not just, you know, a metaphor for something, or it's not just a, a story that it actually happened. And so what I want to do today is look at a few specific things or findings that prove that the Holy Bible was not written by man, but in fact written by God, as the Bible claims it is. A few scriptures that um, back this up, 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.21, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 14.37. Um, those are just a few scriptures that claim that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. One thing that you'll hear me say probably multiple times throughout this podcast is that the Bible was written by man's hand, but not written by man. And what I mean by that is, you know, obviously somebody wrote the words of the Bible, but they weren't the ones writing those words. It was God who was writing those words. God was the one giving them the words to write. And by the end of this episode, I hope that you too will understand that the Bible is through and through the divine word of God. As it says in John uh, 1.1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And by the end of this episode, I think you will agree that, if, if you don't already, that the Word, the Holy Bible, is in fact the Word of God, through and through. And real quick, one last thing I want to talk about before I, I get into the, the message here. Um, I think a lot of Christians, maybe not a lot, but there are some Christians who struggle with this point. And I think there's three categories that we can put the Bible in, in a very generalized sense. The first category is where most people put the Bible, most non-believers, and maybe some Christians as well. But they look at the Bible 
in the same way you would look at, say, Harry Potter or Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings or any other X, Y, and Z fantasy book, right? Where nothing in the Bible can be taken as fact. Uh, there might be some historical truth in the Bible, right? You know, no one would deny that King Cyrus was a real person or that the Red Sea is a real place or whatever. But beyond that, they don't give any credit to anything that the Bible has to say other than maybe some good morals and whatnot. But regardless, other than that, there's no truth to it. In the same way you would look at Harry Potter and say, you know, there's some historical truth to Harry Potter, right? It might mention real places or real people. And there might be some good morals in Harry Potter or some good ideas, but it's still a, a fictional story about wizards and, and magic, right, that nobody would give any credit to. And a lot of people look at the Bible in the same way. And it's unfortunate, and it's more unfortunate that some Christians look at the Bible in a similar manner. The second way to look at the Bible, and this is where I believe a lot of Christians fall, is they look at it like a textbook. And what I mean by that is, much like a textbook, there's truth to it, right? What the textbook says is true. It's founded science. It, it's believable. It's real. It, it can be observed. And it's true. And people look at the Bible in the same way, right, in the second category, that it's true that some of these events actually happened, right? The Exodus was a real event that took place. And... The teachings of the Bible are true, that heaven is a real place, that the soul is a real thing, and so on and so forth. They believe what the Bible says is true, but the key distinction here is that much like a textbook, the Bible was not written by the direct source, rather a secondary source, right? There's rarely any textbook out there, for the most part, that was written by the people who did those initial studies who made those initial findings, right? If you open up a biology textbook, you're not going to have any of the writers who actually found out that information that is in that textbook. I mean, a history te uh, textbook, for example, right? Nobody was around when the Roman Empire fell that's still alive today to write that textbook. And the point being is that much like a textbook was not written by those people who made those discoveries or made those foundings or were in those events, it was written by people who are knowledgeable about it. And they look at the Bible in the same way, that Matthew, let's say, might have been there during Jesus' life, but he wrote his gospel later. He might have changed some of the details. He might have forgotten some things, or he might have misremembered things, right? This second category introduces the idea of error and human fault into the Bible. And to me, that doesn't connect. You can't have human fault and the Word of God in the same sentence, right? It, it just doesn't work. But a lot of Christians, I think, look at the Bible in that way, where they allow for the existence of error within the text. Now, this is different than translational errors, which are human-resulted, but even then, I think God has given us the Bible today that he wants us to have, but that's a discussion for another day. The point being is that we look at the Bible in this way that it was still written by man, so therefore it can't be fully trusted 
or it leaves open the door for debate or context issues and literary issues and things like that. You know, what's true, what isn't true? Is this a liter literal story or is this a parable and, and so on and so forth? Then you have the third category. And this is where I hope we can all be at by the end of this episode. And this third category is simply that the Bible is, through and through, the Word of God. That it was written by man's hand, but was not written by any men. It was written solely by God, and that's it. Period. End of story. And this is, I believe, where we need to, where we should lie as Christians. Now, that again, that still leaves some room for interpretational debates and what certain things mean, because not everything in the Bible is very clear or is meant to be very clear. But beneath all of that arguments and disagreements is that foundation that this is, in fact, the Word of God. And that's where we need to be. But the main reason, though, apart from just setting straight our own theologies and, and whatnot, the main reason I like doing these topics and talking about the proof of the Bible is because I don't think there's anything more encouraging as a believer than knowing that what you believe is undoubtedly true, right? Especially in, in this period of time that we're in where a lot of us are spending time at home and maybe you're spending time with family members that you normally would not spend a whole lot of time with because you're at work and maybe some tensions are flaring up or maybe you're you have a lot of downtime and you're very bored and you know one of the greatest gateways to sin is boredom and you know this isn't an easy time you know assuming that you haven't suffered any loss in this period of time already and in all of this chaos and confusion and hardship it becomes a lot harder to stay focused on God sometimes and keep him at the center and I think if we can have this encouragement to know that the Bible that we are relying on is so fantastically and undescribably true that we can't even begin to doubt it, it, it's such a huge encouragement. And I think you might understand what I mean when we get to the end of this episode and you're as dumbfounded as I am with, <laughs> with the information I present because it is fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, so now, enough talk. I want to get into this, and I, I need to preface by saying that the information I give from this point on is obviously not my original work. Um, this is all the discoveries of a man who I will talk about in a little bit. Um, I'm merely, uh, I am simply repackaging it in a more entertaining way, I guess, <laughs> delivering the information to you, but none of this is my original work. Uh, this is all very high-level studying of the Scripture that most of us probably could never do. I mean, this guy is insane what he did and discovered, and I'll talk more about him later. But most of the information I, I have is from a book called Mathematics Proves Holy Scriptures. And I want to real quick read the uh, the description that's on the front cover here. As a watermark identifies the genuineness of a paper, so there are mathematical patterns beneath the surface of the original text of the Bible, so complex that they can only be accounted for by divine providence. And that is the basis of what we're talking about today, is mathematics. 
mathematics prove the scripture. And I will talk more about this in a moment. But what I want to start with is I want to give you a challenge. Um, if you have a Bible at hand, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 1. A simple chapter. The first half is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then the second half is the birth of Jesus Christ. When the angels come to Mary and Joseph. And so it's a simple passage. Most of us probably skip over the genealogy and get straight to the second half. But I want to focus in on that genealogy. The first... Uh, 18 verses, I believe. I'm sorry, the first 11 verses. Because there's some very interesting things that happen. And I'm going to give you a challenge to do at home. What I want you to do is, you don't actually have to do this. Just mentally do this. Think about it in your head. Think about how hard or easy it might be to do this. But I want you to picture designing a genealogy. Right. Assume that I gave you all the names and you just had to write it out. And that was your challenge. That's pretty easy. Most of us can probably do that in a matter of a few minutes. It's not that hard. Right. So what I want to do is I want to start giving you a list of rules that you have to follow in your genealogy. And just kind of take mental note at what point you say this sounds too hard. I don't think I could ever do this. All right. And also keep in the back of your mind that every rule that I say is also true of Matthew's genealogy, all right? And remember, Matthew was a tax collector. He had no formal education. He was considered very low in society. He was despised by people. This is not a guy who would be on the levels of Shakespeare or Homer or other great writers. So... If Matthew can do it, you should be able to do it at home, too. So let's begin. Rule number one for your genealogy. The total number of words must be a multiple of seven. So you could have seven words. You could have 14 words. You could have 21, 28, 35, etc. But it has to be a multiple of seven. All right? That's pretty easy. Most of us can do that. might take an extra few minutes to shave off a word or add a word, but most of us can do that fairly easily. And Matthew was able to do it, and we see that in Matthew chapter 1. Here's rule number 2. The total number of letters must also be a multiple of 7. Okay, things are getting a little bit more difficult. I would bet that most of you listening are still on board with this challenge, and you could probably do this. might take you closer to 30 minutes at this point, but you could do it, right? There's a lot of words in the English language, and I'm sure you could figure something out. Here's rules number three and four. The total number of vowels and consonants must be a multiple of seven. So the vowels must be a multiple of seven, and the consonants must also be a multiple of seven. Now things are starting to get tricky. <laughs> if you're still playing along, I commend you, because I would have probably quit at this point. You know, this is too much for me at this point. Now i got to count the vowels and the consonants and the letters and the words, all multiple seven. That's not easy. Uh, here's rule number five. The number of words that begin with a vowel must be a multiple of seven. Also, the number of words that begin with a consonant 
must be a multiple of seven. So that's rules number five and six. Rule number eight. I'm sorry, rule number seven. The number of words that occur more than once must be a multiple of seven. The number of words that occur in more than one form must be a multiple of seven. And the number of words that occur in only one form must be a multiple of seven. Now, what it means by form, in case it's been a while since you've been in English class, that's okay. Basically mean run and ran. Those are two forms of the same word. So I'll read that again. The number of words that occur more than once must be a multiple of seven. The number of words that occur in more than one form must be a multiple of seven. And the number of words that occur in only one form must be a multiple of seven. Again, at, at this point, if you're still up for this challenge, that's pretty impressive. I don't think anybody at this point would even want to attempt this, let alone could. And I, I want to remind you that everything I've said to this point is true of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Next rule. The number of nouns must be a multiple of seven. Only seven words cannot be nouns. Now, you can use those words as much as you want, but you only have seven words to use. The number of names has to be a multiple of seven. Only seven other kinds of nouns other than names can be used. And the number of generations has to be a multiple of seven. Now, if you need to hear those again, you can rewind. The point is, there's a lot. And if any of you can honestly say that you would be able to create this genealogy to these rules, is probably lying. <laughs> I don't think anybody can do this intentionally and, and make it work. But, as I mentioned, all of this is true of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. Now, real quick, before I, I get to some more numbers here, I want to explain what we're talking about here. All of this is known as the heptatic structure. Heptatic meaning seven, structure, structure. The structure of seven, the heptatic structure of scripture. Um, sevens are an important number in the Bible. Um, they occur in over 600 passages throughout the Bible. Uh, seven is kind of the divine number, if you will. And it's a very important number in scripture. So it's not a surprise that we see these rules of seven. And so uh, what is the structure? Where did this come from? Who found it? This was the, the result of a discovery by a man named Ivan Panin. That's I-V-A-N-P-A-N-I-N. And in 1890, he discovered these patterns. Now, originally, Ivan Panin was an atheist. He went to Harvard. He's a Russian man, went to Harvard. Um, very smart, very intelligent man. And for most of his life, he was an atheist. And I believe in the 1880s, he converted to Christian. And from that point on, he devoted himself to studying the ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek texts. And in, like I said, in the 1890s, he discovered these patterns. And so for the next 20 or so years of his life, he just studied the scriptures. And he ended up writing over 43,000 pages on the scriptures about this structure. Absolutely amazing. And... Like, as I mentioned before, probably more than any of us could accomplish <laughs> ourselves. I mean, this guy was smart and, and intelligent, and he was devoted to finding this out. 
and we only we're only looking at a small portion of it right now, and we'll talk more about it. But I just wanted to mention that what we're talking about here, and and why this, how we got this information. Um, if you want to learn more, you can buy his books on Amazon. Again, that's Ivan Panin. Um, the book I have is Mathematics Proves Holy Scriptures, and he goes into far more detail about what he's actually talking about, not just the information. Um, very, very interesting reads. But let's get back to the information here. So I gave you 13 rules that we find in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. And one more point of note is that these rules only apply to the Greek. And I want to make that clear just in case you go open up your Bible that you have at home and start counting words and letters and it doesn't match. It's because translating Greek to English, it changes the structure of words, it changes the amount of letters, it changes everything. And so that structure is unfortunately lost when we translate to the English. This is only true of the ancient Greek. And if you happen to have a Greek Bible at home, <laughs> then I encourage you to, to try to find these rules, and I guarantee you they're there. Um, but I want to make that clear just so that you don't send me an angry email like, oh, I, I checked the Bible and I don't see these rules or whatever. It's only in the Greek and the Hebrew that we find these rules. But I want to move on because there's some fascinating stuff I want to touch on here. If we look at the rest of chapter 1, uh, all of the verses that are not part of the genealogy, 161 of them, there's 161 words in the rest of the chapter, which is a multiple of 7, 7 times 23. Those words come in 105 forms, which is a multiple of 7. There's 77 unique vocabulary words, which is a multiple of 7. And if you take the words of the angel alone in, in verse 20 and 21, there's 28 words, multiple of 7, in 35 forms, which is a multiple of 7. And that's just a few numbers for the rest of the chapter. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> and again, I gave you the challenge to do this at home, and it's important to understand that English is a far simpler language to use than Greek is. Greek has a smaller vocabulary. It's far more rigid in how you can structure your sentences. Whereas English is very fluid. You can rearrange sentences. You can play with words. We have a massive uh, selection of words to use. And this is still a challenge for us. So you might be thinking then, well, what if this is chance, right? What if Matthew somehow, by pure chance of luck, managed to write a genealogy that met all of these rules, right? That there was no pre-thought to this. He didn't plan it out. He didn't sit down with these rules in mind. That he just wrote a genealogy and somehow met all of these rules. Let's look at the numbers, right? Let's look at the odds. Um, I'm not a probability guy. I don't know much about probability, so I will try my best to explain what's happening here. <laughs> Basically, the idea is, is that for each rule, there is a 1 in 7 chance that you will randomly meet the requirements of that rule. So if you take the first rule, for example, the number of words must be a multiple of 7. 
you have a one in seven chance that your genealogy will be a multiple seven in terms of words. And if we were to add a second rule, then your chances increase exponentially. So rather than a 1 in 14 chance for two rules, it would be a 1 in 49 chance for two rules. Because now you have not only the first rule of 7 that you have to meet, but now you have a second rule of 7. So if you were to look at just the numbers alone, you could have 1 in 1, you could have 1 in 2, you could have 1 in 3, 1 in 4, 1 in 5, 1 in 6. 1 and 7, you could have 2 and 1, 2 and 2, 2 and 3, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an exponential growth. So if we were to take just nine of the rules, right? I gave you 13, but if I were to give you just nine rules and we were to consider the odds that Matthew could, by pure chance of luck, stumble upon a genealogy that matches those nine rules, the odds would be 1 in 40,353,607. Or 1 in 7 nines. 7 to the ninth power. So let's, uh, let's do some math here. Let's assume that at 8 hours a day, 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, right? you have 120,000 minutes per year. If you were able to do one genealogy every 10 minutes, right, for a full-time job, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, one genealogy every 10 minutes, it would take you roughly 3,362 years to write just one genealogy that met nine of the rules of seven that I gave you. Let that sink in, right? Open the door and let that sink in. This is absurd. This is crazy to me. And to think that Matthew, the tax collector, could have, A, intentionally written a genealogy like this is out the window. But to have stumbled upon it by pure chance of luck is now also out the window. It's impossible. There's no explanation for this other than God. But it gets better than this, all right? I gave you 13 rules, but in fact, Ivan Panin found 34 rules for the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. So that means for Matthew to write the genealogy by chance and have it meet these 34 rules would be a one in 5.4 times 10 to the 28th chance. If you have a pen and pencil, a pencil and some paper near you, I encourage you to write this number out. Write 5.4 followed by 28 zeros. Right, that's 54 with 28 zeros behind it. That's a one in that number chance that Matthew wrote the genealogy of Jesus Christ by pure chance, by pure random chance. And so I want to break this down again. Let's run some numbers, all right? So there is roughly 3.15 times 10 to the 7 seconds in the year, which is 315 with 7 zeros behind it, seconds a year. If you had a supercomputer, right, that could do 400 million genealogies every single second, 
400 million genealogies a second, and you had a million of these supercomputers running 24-7, right? So that's a million supercomputers doing 400 million genealogies a second. It would still take you roughly 4 million years to get just one genealogy that matches the one in Matthew chapter 1. This is absurd. <laughs> this is absolutely insane. Like, I don't think I can emphasize just how impossible the, the genealogy in, in Matthew is. Like, this should not exist by any human standard. Which means Matthew, the tax collector, is either hands down the greatest writer to ever live and will ever live, bar none, nobody can even compare to the writing ability of Matthew, or Option two, Matthew is the luckiest human being to ever live and could do anything and get it right the first try, regardless of the odds, could win every single lottery on the first ticket, could you know, do the most insane, incredible things by pure chance. Or option three, Matthew didn't write the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and in fact, God wrote the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter one. And Matthew simply wrote the words that he was instructed to write. Because this is impossible. It is, it, it is not possible that Matthew could do this. And here's the kicker, as if all this wasn't good enough. There is, in fact, not 34 rules in Matthew chapter 1, but there are 75 rules that Ivan Panin discovered in Matthew chapter 1. I'm not even going to run the numbers. That's, it's, it's, it would even matter. This is an insane stuff. And that's just Matthew chapter 1. I want to remind you that Ivan Panin did this for the entire Bible. It's not just Matthew chapter 1. It's every single chapter of the Bible, every single book of the Bible has this structure. It might not be even. Some might have more rules. Some might not have as much rules. But this is throughout the entire Bible. And if this isn't starting to hit you yet, just how incredible this book is, then I don't know what else to tell you. The good news is I'm not done yet. I got more to share. <laughs> uh, I want to look real quick at the rest of the Gospels. So throughout the entire book of Matthew, he has there's, there's words, there's vocabulary words unique to the book of Matthew, right? Words that are not seen anywhere else in the New Testament. Those vocabulary words occur 42 times, which is a multiple of seven, with 126 letters, which is a multiple of seven. Now you might be thinking, well, how could this be, right? Well, the, the, the assumed idea would be that Matthew must have written his book last, right? He could have looked at the other Gospels and said, okay, these are the words they used. Let me go find some vocabulary words that they don't have that I can then use 42 times with 126 letters and so on and so forth. But there's an issue with this, because the same is true of Mark's gospel. He has vocabulary words unique to him that occur 42 times with 126 letters. So maybe Mark wrote his gospel last. Well, this is also true of Luke's gospel. He has vocabulary words unique to him that occur 42 times with 126 letters. This is also true of John's gospel. He has vocabulary words that occur 42 times with 126 letters. And this is also true of Peter and Jude and Paul and James. 
every single New Testament writer has vocabulary words unique only to them that they use 42 times with 126 letters. I mean, it, there's no amount of coordination between those writers that would allow them to create those, those numbers. And there's one last thing I want to look at just to really, really hammer this whole thing home. I want to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, I'm not going to spend as much time on this one. I just want to real quick throw you some numbers, throw you the rules, partly to show, A, that this applies to every part of the Bible, but, B, there's a story that ties into this that I want to share at the end. Um, one thing I should mention is there's this thing called gematria, uh, which is basically the idea of, in the Hebrew language and the Greek language, every letter had a number value assigned to it. Um, this is not something we do today, but in these periods of time, this was a big deal, right? You know, oftentimes letters would be interchanged for numbers, um, or, you know, the, the value of words was very important in this period of time. And so part of the rules of seven that Ivan Panin found were based off of this idea that every letter had a numerical value. And so he found that a lot of words, their value, if you will, was a multiple of seven or different things like that. Um, I only mention that because I have a few rules that uh, apply to that. And if you want to know more about Gematria and what that is, you can look into it more. And, and it's a big part of what Ivan Panin did was looking at the value of words, not just the words themselves. Um, so here are a few rules that are found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Just that verse alone. The total number of words, of Hebrew words, is seven. And those seven words consist of 28 letters. Uh, the first three words, which translate to, in the beginning God created, is 14 letters. And the last four words, the heavens and the earth, is 14 letters. Uh, the fourth and fifth words have seven letters. The sixth and seventh words have seven letters. The three key words, God, heaven, and earth, have 14 letters. And obviously the remaining four words have 14 letters. Uh, the shortest verse is the middle word with seven letters. Getting into the gematria here, the he Hebrew numeric value of the first, middle, and last letters is 133, which is 7 times 19. And the Hebrew numeric value of the first and last letters of all seven words is 1393, which is 7 times 199, and so on and so forth. These are just a few rules, but there's tons in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And the reason I bring this up is not just to show that this heptatic structure applies throughout the Bible, but there's a very interesting story that ties into this. When professors on the mathematics faculty at Harvard University were presented with this biblical phenomenon, they naturally attempted to disprove its significance as a proof of divine authorship. However, after valiant efforts, efforts, these professors were unable to duplicate this incredible mathematical phenomenon. The Harvard scientists used the English language and artificially assigned numeric values to the English alphabet. They had a potential vocabulary of over 400,000 available English words to choose from to construct a sentence about any topic they chose. Compare this to the limitations of word choices in the biblical Hebrew language which has only 4,500 available word choices that the writers of the Old Testament could use. 
Despite their advanced mathematical abilities and access to computers, the mathematicians were unable to come close to incorporating 30 mathematical multiples of 7 as found in the Hebrew words of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And, I mean, all of this that I've said so far is just the surface. Like I said, Ivan Panin wrote over 43,000 pages on this. So if you're blown away now, I mean, there's so much more to this than what I already said. And I know I threw a lot of numbers and information at you, so if you need to go back and listen to this, it's here. And my encouragement to you is that I don't expect you to memorize this or, or use this in a conversation with somebody who's not a believer. This is largely for yourself, right? I want you to be able to sit back and think, man, God is good. <laughs> this, this Bible that I read every day or, or use regularly is so beyond my capability to understand. You know, and it, it's that kind of encouragement that I want to leave you with. You know, when those times of doubts come or those hardships come or, or whatever you might face, it's so much easier to get through those moments when you have such a unshakable faith in, in the words that you're relying on to get you through that situation. And I mean, I, I hope hopefully this hit you as hard as it hit me when I first read this information. I mean, these, it's staggering what the Bible is. I mean, we don't, we cannot fully understand the complexity of what we have in our hands. I, I mean, it's insane. It's incredible what God has given to us in the form of the Bible. And I don't think anybody, any of the writers knew just what they were writing. I don't think they had the ability to fully appreciate the words that they were writing and the word choice and, and why this word and not that word or, or why leave this out or add this in. And hopefully next time you read the Bible, you'll have a newfound appreciation for the words that are there. You know, maybe next time you ask yourself, why doesn't God say this? Why did he use this word instead of that word? Well, maybe it's because it fits in the structure, right? Maybe it, it there's a reason to it, but it, there's deeper meaning behind it that we can't even begin to understand. I don't know. It, it, it's just it's incredible to me, and it's an encouragement to me, and I hope that it is for you as well. And I hope this is something that you can use in your own life to bolster your faith and, and push you through those hard times. And when you're facing those periods of doubt, you know, it's hard to put this stuff aside. It's hard to put the Bible aside when you know it is, in fact, the true, undeniable Word of God. So hopefully this all made sense to you. I, I tried my best to repackage it in a way that made sense and was understandable. Again, if you need to re-listen to anything to get the information again, get the numbers again, you can go through that again. But I would encourage you, go in and go to Amazon or wherever you decide to get your books and search the book, Mathematics Proves Holy Scriptures by Ivan Panin. It's a fantastic read. It, it's not super long, but he basically just breaks down all of the rules of seven and, and how what they mean, and, 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 and it's just great. And, and he goes through many different passages, and it's a fantastic read, and it adds, every, more, it adds more to what I've said already. 
while further explaining it better than maybe I could. <laughs> but I encourage you to read it. I don't get any money for it. This isn't a sponsored episode or anything like that. Um, but I encourage you to read it. It's a great read. And the point being is that the Bible is fantastic, well beyond our ability to understand it. And because of that, all the more reason why we need to rely on it and why we need to trust it and why we need to turn to it rather than putting it to the side. So with that being said, um, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Um, again, just stay safe, stay healthy. Keep an eye out on our social media um, for any updates if anything changes as things are very fluid right now. Um, again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you guys in the next one.